This podcast is sponsored by our B Corp friends, a group of businesses dedicated to social and environmental change while making a buck. One of these legends is Glam Corner. With over 6,000 of the latest dresses from over 200 top international and Australian designers, Glam Corner have an outfit and accessories for everyone. They also have some great added benefits such as a fit guarantee, a try-on before you hire system, express delivery and even a backup dress option. Perfect for when you're umming and ahhing over the options. Read more about Glam Corner and find out more about how you can buy better by B at dumbofeather.com forward slash buy better by B. This podcast is also sponsored by G Adventures, a small group adventure travel company offering awe-inspiring and affordable tours, safaris and expeditions. G Adventures award-winning trips embrace local accommodation, cuisine and transport to put travellers on a first-name basis with the planet's people, cultures, landscapes and wildlife. We think they're ace and have profiled one incredible G Adventures trip taken by travel writer Christina Retschlag on our site. If you want to check it out, it's entitled Lessons from Nepal. Hey, and welcome to this episode of the Dumbo Feather podcast, a monthly series where we chat with inspiring, thought-provoking guests who are doing their bit to make the world better. This month, we're bringing you a conversation between Issue 56 profilee, the legendary Bob Brown, and me, Nathan Scolaro from Dumbo Feather. For decades, Bob has inspired generations of Australians to feel a deep reverence for the environment and campaign to protect it. In this episode, he talks about his latest efforts to save the Tarkine, a wilderness region in northwest Tasmania, and how embracing music, the arts, and self-care is central to empowered activism. Good evening, everyone. So I thought we'd start with the the motto of um, the Bob Brown Foundation, which is don't get depressed, get active. And I think that's obviously in response to um, the planet and the times for our environment. And I think that um, not only don't get depressed, but don't um, don't get cynical, don't escape, don't turn your eye. Because I think we've had a, a conditioning in our culture to kind of turn a blind eye to things that are tough, that are too epic, um, like the state of the planet, um, to actually confront. And when we do confront... We can get despair. We can despair. We can get depressed. So I want to talk about this um, transition, this journey from one of despair to one of action, and maybe you can give well, us the, some, the, some tools. The first thing, I was, thanks, Nathan. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. The first thing I should say is I did spend ten years depressed when I was younger. That I clinically depressed, uh, taking tablets for it, etc. And um, at times, you know, there's two types of uh, depression. One's endogenous. It's, it's an awful malady to have, but the depression we're really talking about here is reactive depression. It's the depression reacting to the state of the planet. We're, we're so far as we know, the only intelligent, self-aware, to the point of being able to change one's own environment, creatures in the universe. But um, everywhere I go, I these days run into people saying, why are you so optimistic? Why, why? and, and um, talk to schools and there's almost inevitably the question will come out from teenagers, Bob Brown, why are you so happy? Uh, and it's a very reasonable question. And 
Bertrand Russell, great British philosopher of mid-last century who led the Aldermaston marches against the spread of nuclear weapons and so on, observed that the trouble with the world is that the stupid are cocksure. He wasn't talking about current Australian politics. This is 70 years ago. <laughs> the trouble with the world is that the stupid are cocksure and the intelligent are full of self-doubt. Mm. And if you are intelligent in that wide sense of having common sense, you inevitably do have doubt about yourself and your abilities. And uh, so it was uh, great to see the Dalai Lama clasp the hand of a 14-year-old girl in Adelaide some years ago and she said to him, uh, Your Holiness, what's the most important thing for a young person to have? And I was thinking, here we go, it'll be love or joy or compassion. And he grabbed her hand and looked her in the eye and said, self-confidence. And we have that right to self-confidence, and yet uh, it's a very reasonable thing to look at what's happening to the world socially for this biggest herd of mammals ever to graze the planet. There's eight billion of them of us now. There was two and a half billion when I came onto the planet in 1944. There's triple that now, consuming Earth's living resources at 160% of the replaceable rate. That's why every day we wake up, there's less forests, there's less other species, there's less fisheries, there's less arable land, but more mouths to feed. And yet there being no global cohesive effort to bring ourselves into a sensible, sustainable relationship with the planet. So it is eminently reasonable to get depressed, mm. uh, to get angry, but... Uh, having had lots of experience with that, I didn't like it very much. And uh, the prescription is, well, what's the alternative? And the alternative is to accept that we don't know what's going to happen to the planet and to human society on it. The disaster hasn't overtaken the cataclysm, which you can look down the line and see where some scientists say the population at the end of this century will be one billion human beings. Uh, hasn't yet come across us, although we can see signs of it breaking out. Uh, surely our collective intelligence doesn't want that to happen and we can take remedial action. Now, there's the big question. And uh, what I thrive on is taking action, that remedial action. We feel impotent as individuals. We feel, what, what difference do I make? But collectively... Uh, we can make that difference. And I, I've, finally, I have never been to a community or a group of people anywhere in the world who don't think the same, mm. who can't see what's going on and think this is not going to end up well. If only we were to share. That's the first thing. We have to share. And the second thing, we have to honour this one little planet beneath our feet which is everything we are. It can do without us, but, but we can't do without it. It makes me think that we need to redefine or have a new relationship with this word activist. I think we've always seen that the activists on the fringes are the ones that are going to make the change. We've also had a quite a negative kind of cultural response to what the activist is. And we should all be embodying this term and what it means to actually make a change 
in the world. I yeah, well, what Peter, that shift could Peter look like. Dutton doesn't like activists, but we shouldn't <laughs> take his definition, you see. But when you look at history, that can be quite inspiring. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I get, if I teeter close to depression again, I go and read about the suffragettes. Look at them. You know, there they were uh, in jails in Britain. They were active here in Australia, of course, but we got the suffrage much earlier. South Australia was second to New Zealand and then the Commonwealth began with universal suffrage in in 1901. Mm. But in Britain, they were being dragged off to jail, spat on by other women. The House of Lords, they were thundering that how could you possibly run an economy if women had a say? Mm. They, They were totally abused, those women. And a lot of them, because of the intervention of the First World War, didn't get to live to see it. But we all now take female suffrage, universal suffrage, for granted. A long way to go in some countries still, but uh, we're getting there. And it's the old story, isn't it? An idea whose time has come is, is irresistible. And I think the same applies to the idea that we have to live with this planet instead of off it if we're going to hand on to future generations the joy of life that we can achieve uh, is an idea that should be supreme. And how to get there is the discussion, and how to do it quickly is important. But there's other revolutions in history you can look at where a few people got done in. Now, getting kids out of the mines and a universal education back in the 19th century is another good example of it. Uh, ending slavery, you know. Um, the, the history's full of what we think now are horrible things which were part of the norm until people came along and this evolving intelligence said, that, that's wrong, we've got to do better than that. Do you think we're at a turning point now in the environmental movement? No. No? No. In fact, um, I, think the, the, I think the populace is far better educated about the environment than 30 or 40 years ago. But um, no, uh, the earth is going to hell in a handbasket as far as its environment's concerned. And beyond the overall statistic I just gave, 160% of the living resources being consumed at the moment. It's out of control. Uh, Population, it'll grow by 30% this century. Consumption, the rest of the world catches up with what we in this room are using at the moment will grow by 300%. And that's what the rest of the world wants. And that means an extra up to 12 planets, and we've only got one. So that's why I'm an advocate of global democracy. I think uh, the one thing that's missing out of this is that people don't really have a say in this. I have faith in the the populace being able to, given a fair opportunity, to make right decisions because of their kids and their kids' kids. Everybody wants their, their kids to have a good future. But we have a plutocracy in control of the world. We have um, massive uh, monetary interests that control the world. 15,000 billionaires, and there's more in Beijing, in communist Beijing, how easy to trash a guiding philosophy of equality for all, a la socialism or communism, there's now more billionaires in Beijing than there are in New York. And those people have this Saudi royal family, a few Mm -hmm. others, uh, that tiny part of 1% 
who are actually calling the shots around the world mm. and uh, and who don't want global democracy because they don't trust the people. Mm. But what would global democracy look like? Let me give you a, a, an example. A uh, question for next Saturday's global referendum. Uh, one to two trillion dollars is being spent on armaments, on weapons for killing each other at the moment. Would you agree with 10% of that being diverted to ensure that every girl and boy on the planet had clean water, food for their belly and a school to go to to give them the opportunity in life? I know what the result of that would be. But I know who's going to not want that question put forward and who's going to stop it. Um, yeah, global democracy, one person, one value, mm. or one vote, one value mm. for one planet. Uh, when I proposed that when I was in the Senate and the Iraq war was on because we'd gone to Iraq to give Iraq freed of a tyranny, which it certainly had, and give it democracy. So I thought, well, this is good. If we can do it peaceably, let's have it democracy brought in peacefully around the world. Put up a proposal for global democracy yeah. and the vote was 74 to 2 mm. against it in one of the oldest democracies on the planet. Mm. We are not prepared to share. We're not prepared to empower other people. And until we do, we're in big trouble. Mm. Mm. But the job of any government, and I, and I believe, by the way, in free enterprise and, and uh, the market, the job of the government is to regulate that in the interests of everybody. That's how a system should work. Mm. But at the moment, it, um, governments have largely been bought mm. and uh, and if you see the lobbying system there is not a single full-time environmental lobbyist in Canberra. When I went and sat at Aussie's coffee shop of the morning uh, having worked out the media of the day and the story of the day or the proposal <laughs> for the Senate I soon learned not to go and sit by myself because I'd no sooner sit down with my cup of coffee than there would be the mining lobbyist on the other seat saying, oh, Senator Brown, very rude of me. I don't want to interrupt you, really. Here's just my card. I'll come and see you later. I've got a proposal I want to put you for and tell you why this proposal <laughs> should go ahead and so on. So I learnt very quickly to get Emily or Rose or one of the people in the office to come with her work and sit at the other desk while I had a, <laughs> a coffee and then deal with the lobbyist later. But you, Penny Wong, wonderful person as Minister for Energy saying I have seen every coal company in Australia straight in the door. It's, it's just how it happens. Mm. Have you seen every community affected by every coal company mm. in Australia? No, mm. none of them. Mm. The proximity is everything. It makes me think of the, the Henry David Thoreau quote that I think you referenced before, in wildness is the preservation of the world, that when we're proximate to wild places, we're in wild places, we are more committed to act and to preserve and to look after. We feel into our responsibility as custodians yeah, of the well planet. It's true, Nathan, and we come out of the wilds. Our ancestry, some people estimate there's been 105 like us billion human homo sapiens since we were evolved to have this big brain here working the way mm -hmm. it does, roughly speaking. 105 billion. Now... Uh, it's, it's 10, 15% of that has come since the Industrial Revolution. In fact, there was only a billion people when Tolstoy was ruminating on the fate of the planet uh, 120 years ago. Uh, 
And all our previous evolutionary relationship on this planet has been in, in a wild planet dominated by nature and, and this little curl on our ears is to pick up the faintest sound from the forest floor. Uh, and, you know, our eyes are set back in our head so we can move rapidly through the forest without having our visual amenity destroyed. Same with our psyche, or if you like, our soul. And the simplest way of pointing that out is uh, that we do, as an act of devotion, hand to our loved ones a nice big bunch of flowers, not a chainsaw. <laughs> uh, we are creatures of the wild. Uh, other things eat the flowers. The horses at home at Liffey come up and they eat off everything. They, can, they don't see uh, what... They don't get a bunch of flowers and hand it to each other. You know, it's just a different setup. We human beings, though, have got this intellect that's come out of the wild. We love nature. We like wildlife. We're particularly keen on babies of every species. <laughs> we want our kids to watch Attenborough. Yeah. We put pictures on our walls of yeah. nature. Yeah. Uh, and yet this wildness that Thoreau spoke about is being destroyed at the greatest rate in history. Arguably the world's wilderness, the world's fastest disappearing non-renewable resource. And yet as a young doctor, I was inspired by the Franklin River, by the fact that this wildness is a great repository. It's an anxiolytic. It, it gets rid of our anxieties. Being able to go for a walk in the park, let alone go for a walk in wilderness, much better than building more dams to get more electricity to set up more tranquilizer factories. Yes, yes. But if you want to make money, the tranquilizer factory options are, is beckoning. And, and, you know, that's, that's a very simplistic thing to say because more and more people are realising that uh, our wealth can go into protecting what we have and allowing people to enjoy it. And one of the great things about modern technology is wilderness isn't for everybody to put their pack on their back and go into a blizzard in some remote Tasmanian place, you know, where you, it's very, very discomforting. But more and more, uh, we get the pleasure, Attenborough is a good example, but there's going to be much more sophisticated than that. Three-dimensional uh, visits to the Tarkine forests are going to be at our fingertips in the future without ever going there. I, I also think there's a... Um, so for a long time we've kind of looked to the wild as something we need to be scared of, right? Um, both in terms of our inner lives, so don't go to the wild places because we might lose control, so let's be protective of that and not go there. But also I think that manifests in our, in our external environments as well. We have to be fearful and scared of what's actually out in the wild. But I, I see that shifting. I see like people doing rewilding camps and kind of starting to move a bit more closely to what it actually means to embrace the wild self and then the wild, the wild world, this kind of parallel that happens. Um, I don't know what the question is, but how does that well, land? Well, <laughs> it's very important to know that we are shaped by the wild planet. Uh, and the great symphonies and the great works of art, well, Gaudi, the Barcelona architect, you know, the, uh, all creativity comes from the great book of nature. And it's true. Mm. And we're part of nature and that's part of nature. And 
that's part of nature. Mm. It didn't come out of some spaceship. It's transformed nature. The potential was always there. And here we are uh, rapidly converting the, in, the universe we lived in, in wild nature, into more of this. And the problem is we haven't been able to stop. And uh, if the Adani mine goes ahead pursuing coal in our time to produce billions of tonnes of more greenhouse gases into an already overloaded atmosphere and more greenhouse gases, middle-order country like Malaysia, for example, extended over decades, I'm bringing a cavalcade of cars up to get in the way. Because here's the question. Uh, are we simply going to knowing what's happening? Are we either going to wring our hands and say, I can't do anything about that and go shopping, or are we going to step off the footpath and peacefully, there's no, there's no role for violence here, they'll, they'll win every time in the violence stakes. The state has got the tanks and the bulldozers and, and the uh, police apparatus. But are we going to peacefully make a stand and... Drew Dellinger, the US poet, it's 3.23 in the morning and I'm awake and I can't sleep because my great-great-grandchildren keep coming to me in dreams and my great-great-grandchildren say to me, what did you do when the seasons started changing? What did you do when the mammals and reptiles and birds were going to extinction? What did you do? Did you step off the footpath when they stole democracy? Did you fill the streets with protests? Great, 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 great grandfather, when you knew, what did you do? And that's the question for all of us mm. to answer now because they can't come back and undo what's happening at the moment. But we are in a better position to take action about this than anybody else on the planet. Mm. What I'm so inspired by about your story is that you've, done, you've been doing the doing for so long now, for so many decades. I'm a bit worried yet, though. Yeah, I've been far too humble and, and withdrawn and... and uh, and uh, inactive. That's, that's the question we all have in our veins. And that's why I, I, I talk about going to Adani uh, or protecting the Tarkine Coast if they bring the off-road vehicles down there to smash through ancient indigenous heritage. Uh, or going down to Belfast Beach between Warrnambool and Port Ferry in October when a thousand racehorse hooves using that beach as free training ground will come as the hooded plover. It used to be the most productive beach in Victoria for this bird, little tiny beautiful bird heading for extinction. 16 chicks raised to adulthood three years ago. Racehorses now pounding up and down one chick last year. And we're gonna have picnics on the beach. And I do hope as the racehorses are thundering over they don't put sand in my crumpets. <laughs> but, you know, we, 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 we're in this, we're in, 
we're in a, a beautiful position to get out of our comfort zone and do a little bit. And um, I've, I've learned one other thing, Nathan, and that is never say you're going to do something if you don't intend to do it. And what I loved about our conversation was the last time was that you you really celebrate uh, the joys in life as well. You talked about really loving the Beethoven Symphony, and you know when someone smashes a world record, that these things really brought you alive. And you have this beautiful Earth ceremony now that you've been doing once a year. Yeah, well, I went to the Kettering Hall with Paul, partner Paul, yesterday, where you had a little photo. I had a photo. He put up a photographic exhibition of twenty wild pictures, including the Tarkine and, and pictures around the country. But that was an adornment for, they had a, a, a pianist and a cellist and a violinist and he played, Christian, he played Beethoven's first piano concerto. Now, I don't understand that. I really, I, I mean, I can't hum you the tune now. But how that piece of music could have been, come out of that young Beethoven's brain, he was a, just barely out of his teenage when he wrote that, and how this person can play that music. I just watched the little finger occasionally being engaged at the top of the register. And it was transporting. Uh, we human beings are phenomenal. Mm-hmm. How to... And entertainment doesn't hurt the planet. In fact, Emma Goldman, the social revolutionary in Chicago of 120 years ago, she, they were trying to get women out of sweatshops. She said to her fellow revolutionaries... I don't want your revolution if I can't dance. And she's so right. So my advice to people is if you're troubled about taking on studies when you should be campaigning, go and do your studies. Life's long. If, if you're worried uh, about the next vacation, you know, if you want to have your trip down the Danube, go and take it. If you're feeling really stressed and you feel like hitting the shops and getting a new... Patagonia. Got <laughs> 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 a few plugs. Go and do it. You know, we, I, I, when I'm wielding my little Olympus camera around and thinking what the price of that could be doing for some untouchables in India, it, it, it can stop you in your tracks. But at the same time, be generous. Be thought, build in a tithing campaign. Um, uh, it, money does empower other people to be active. But give yourself... I, I got grabbed by the collar in Hobart Town Hall by David Hackworth, the most decorated American Marine of the Vietnam War, when Ronald Reagan was president. And he said to me, you've got to stop talking about forests. This man's a madman. He's going to blow the world up. And, it's, and I said to him, David, if that's the case, I'm going home to read a book. You know, if, it, if it's all so urgent and anxious that we have to drop everything we're doing, give up on everything that we love and, and get into this strident, and you see it on the faces of some folk, this strident, even hateful tirade against what's going on on the planet, we're finished. Mm-hmm. No, you have time. You've got to look after yourself. Make sure if you see somebody else who's in distress, go and have a cup of tea with them and say, hey, mm. Sally, what's, what's going on here? It's, it's so easy to, to help other people struggling also to turn that around. We've got to look after ourselves. Mm. Well, let's talk about what we can do in the context of the Tarkine because the Bob Brown Foundation and Patagonia are working really hard to, 
save the Tarkine from what I understand is uh, logging, mining, off-road vehicle damage, a lot of forces at play. Yeah, the Tarkine... Where's the campaign at? Maybe? Well, it's half a million hectares of northwest Tasmania and it includes the biggest temperate rainforest in Australia. It's the nearest great rainforest for Melbourne. Uh, and it's under unprecedented threat. 90% of it's under mineral exploration licences. The logging is authorised by state and federal governments and 159 coops. Now, these are areas between 60 and 200 football fields in area are scheduled to be logged of the Tarkine forests, including these are principally eucalypt forests at the moment, but they're moving on rainforest all the time in the next three years and after that more and more. And even though John Howard even committed to protecting those rainforests in 2004, they're now open to sensitive, sustainable logging. Well, no. And they're full of wild and uh, rare creatures like the Astacopsis gouldi, the world's biggest freshwater invertebrate. It's not in the Nile or the Mississippi or the Amazon or the Brahmaputra. It's in these little streams in the Tarkine. And they're faced with extinction. Logging lets mud down in the river. Mud covers the rocks. For the first seven years, they need to be under those rocks because trout eat them. Even platypus will have a go at them. So cover their rocks, they're gone. You know, we, it's public. Melbourne saved the Franklin. We couldn't save it in Tasmania. It was, I was just saying to mm. you, there's 20 people in Melbourne for every one in Tasmania. And... Uh, and, and it, it applies to all great environmental issues. Australia will stop the Adani mine. Queensland won't. Australia stopped the great gas factory over the Gularbaru people's lands north of Broome a few years back. They couldn't have stopped it there, but Australia did. And it was corporate action that stopped that, not, not government action. It was good people in corporations that stopped that. And uh, it's the same with the Tarkine. It'll be national attention to the Tarkine and until we insist our politicians do the right thing by the environment and say, I'm not going to vote for you if you don't save the Tarkine, mm. they'll keep doing that. But with the Franklin, it became overwhelmingly clear that a lot of people were changing their votes to protect the environment mm. and it saved it. Mm. Mm. And the Tarkan has been a really powerful place for you to go back to. I remember you saying you go back quite often. It's a place to restore. And you had this beautiful quote about you, you always connect. Every time you go back there, you feel connected to the 155 billion people on the planet. Well, for reasons that I spoke to, uh, about earlier, but the Tarkan, yes, I went there first in 1973 looking for the Tasmanian tiger. It wasn't there, but plenty of devils. Now it's their stronghold as they are on the march to extinction. And the, the great Tasmanian wedge tail, uh, eagle, one of the seven big raptors, the Astacopsis gouldi, the world's biggest freshwater invertebrate, and on it goes. It's a stronghold, a fastness mm. for a whole range of birds and animals and insects and reptiles. And besides that, it's got this fabulous Aboriginal heritage. The Aboriginal people were cruelly dispossessed of their lands in Tasmania as in so much else of the country. And part of our campaign is to get them back into ownership of this little 7% of Tasmania. No, pub, no private land involved. It's all public lands and a, and a track 
across the Tarkine so people can go and enjoy uh, what would be for the, it'll be the longest walking wilderness track in Tasmania and would take 10 days, but you could do it in two halves. Uh, a proposal to actually, uh, instead of the job losing logging and mining industries, have a job winning, lets people see this wonderful wild place. Mm. I'm reading a story at the moment and she references something that happened in the Amazon in the 1960s, you might know this. Um, but there was a whole lot of logging that happened. Um, the government gave permission to, for a lot of industry to log through the rainforest in the 60s. Um, and three months into the work, uh, the, the project kind of got washed out. And so everyone had to leave the site. And um, they came back six months later and they couldn't find where they'd done all their work. And more than that, they couldn't find the machinery that they'd left there, like all these trucks and cranes and all of it was gone. And so they think that nature kind of, Amazon kind of swallowed up all of this work. And it kind of makes me think, will nature have the last say? Oh, it will, inevitably. It'll Mm -hmm. be species depleted. But the films you might see about post the end of the world, the end of humanity, uh, if if we're foolish enough, uh, yes, nature will... Uh, go on again and, and indeed in a few billion years time a couple of billion years time it might even resurrect our uh, level of intelligence but what a pity you know all we need here is common sense uh, and to defy those who are degrading the planet instead of celebrating it and and you know uh, economic pres- prosperity coming out of celebrating the planet uh, is just a, a fantastic option. Everybody's um, able to enjoy something of that, but we're not in that thinking vein yet. We're just taken over by the big M religion of materialism, and uh, when that passes, we'll have a chance. But in the meantime, uh, protecting the Tarkine would be a big win, and it in, uh, we know from the Franklin always then sends the thrill of encouragement to people fighting 100 (coughs) Nicaraguan anti-dam campaigners shot dead since 2014. We have it so easy in this country. Mm. And it sends out uh, hope to people in much more desperate situations. So it isn't just the Tarkine, but what protecting it, and we're going to protect it, will mean for other people. Bob, thank you. Please don't ever stop talking. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Dumbo Feather Podcast. And Bob, thank you so much for sharing your breadth of knowledge and grounding presence with us. Read more about Bob in issue 56 of Dumbo Feather, Embracing the Wild. And to help save the Tarkine, join Patagonia and the Bob Brown Foundation in telling the Tasmanian government to nominate it for World Heritage Protection. You can find a link to the petition in our show notes. This edited conversation was produced by our digital editor, Lizzie Martin. The music you hear is by Dennis Liu. Stay tuned for Dumbo Feather's next conversation, or hear it first by subscribing to the Dumbo Feather podcast on your favourite pod channel. And for more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe to Dumbo Feather at dumbofeather.com. We deliver worldwide. 
This podcast is sponsored by the thoughtful people at Free Range Future, a marketing and digital creative agency in Adelaide and Melbourne that works with not-for-profits, social enterprises, the arts, government and purposeful for-profit businesses. If you need an agency with a strong design aesthetic and an unwavering commitment to human connection, Free Range Future is for you. Check them out and read more at dumbofeather.com forward slash by better by bee.